Welcome to the Obsessed with Real Estate show. I'm your host, Alana George, and I am obsessed with real estate. Not sure if you hear my baby crying in the background trying to get down for a nap, but he's pretty loud on my end. Hopefully you can't hear him. You're not listening in your car to a baby crying and me talking because that would be stressful. Anyways, today I have an amazing interview for you with TJ Cozen out of Dallas. Texas, and we dive into a whole slew of topics, including team building, how he's doing 50 deals a year from his direct to seller marketing. And I do ask him what he is exactly doing to get those deals, to get those leads. And then we talk about how he, through perseverance and mindset, was able to learn to walk again after losing use of his legs after an accident. Amazing, very inspiring story. He is direct to the point. I feel like he is basically reiterating everything inspirational out of any leadership book I've read. I hope that you listen to this and you're inspired also to go do the thing, take the action, and don't fear failure. Let's chat with TJ now. Perfect. I'm here with TJ Cozen with R-E-I-A-F. I'm super interested in what is that? <laughs> he said it didn't stand for, for anything, but I think we can come to our own conclusions. Thank you so much for being here, TJ. Mm, awesome. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm really excited to hop into this interview because I know very little about you. A lot of my guests that I have on the show, I met places or they're my friends. We're in the industry together, but you and I have never met before. I got a request for you to come on the show that whatever you were going to say today was going to be a match with our audience. So I'm going to trust that stranger that reached out to me. You did mention that we have four mutual friends on Facebook. Yeah. Which in my, so in the, in the residential real estate investing industry, not to be judgy, but you kind of judge like, well, is that guy doing volume? Uh, if he is, he, we got to have some mutual friends. If they're not, it's like, well, maybe they're in it for a minute or not. But since there's some crossover, obviously, with you being more on the like real estate realtor side, uh, yeah. not so much on the investor side, four is not bad. Like four is actually pretty solid, I think. Cool. I'm glad I've got, I made it. <laughs> it's probably why you took the interview. You're like, four mutual friends. I guess she's uh, almost somebody. So it works <laughs> out. <laughs> Um, I'm sure you're doing fine. <laughs> Thanks, DJ. Okay. So I want to jump into your background. Tell me who you are. Tell our listeners what got you into real estate uh, and why. Yeah, for sure. It's actually kind of a long story. So we'll kind of do the condensed version, I suppose. I started actually in 2006, which is not the maybe most opportunistic time to get into commercial real estate of all things. I started off doing loans in California from San Diego, and that was a fun market. We didn't do, I like to say we didn't really do bad loans in my experience in our company, but we saw a lot of the products that were in the marketplace in terms of the, the no income, the wire loans and all that other stuff. And then being from the West Coast, was kind of more sensitive to market fluctuations. Like obviously growing up there, we kind of seen the market go up and down. We saw the crash in the 80s and the kind of dot-com like affect real estate more. So I was thinking, you know, I want to get into investing. I want to do something different, but California might be a little unpredictable right now. So let's go do something way more sensible. So my first deal I found on Craigslist of all places, it was 112 units of apartment complexes in Memphis, Tennessee. Went out there, looked at a bunch of different deals. Not the buy the first deal that you look at, but looked at probably 30 or 40 other deals, did a lot of kind of the legwork and all that. 
ended up buying the first one that I saw. That was cool. Um, and did a massive renovation project on it. Uh, when we bought it, it was about 10% occupied. When we were done, uh, we got it up to an economic occupancy of about 92%. I think we still had a couple of units left to renovate at the kind of tail end of the project. My second deal was 98 units in a similar submarket, but a couple miles away. And it was good. It was already pretty well stabilized. So we went in there and kind of fixed the management a little bit, did some light capitalization, refinanced it. So that was fun. The only problem with buying stuff in 2006 was 2008 was right around the corner. And the only problem with 2008 in commercial real estate was we didn't really feel it quite so much. Like we saw the stock market crash and all that good stuff happening in like September, August, September of 08. But we didn't really feel like the ramifications of the banking industry and the changes in market rents and stuff until probably end of 2009 it was kind of when that really started to hit. So 10 and 11 were a lot of fun. I had a, that, was, that was some of my favorite memories in those years. Went back to California. And if there's a saving grace, I suppose that saying that California was, in my opinion at the time, I thought California was kind of overpriced and a little like fluffy on top. The entire state basically took like, what, a 40% haircut, I think. So I did what any sensible person would do. Like I know my, my parents' house took a 40% haircut. Any rentals that we had out there from just like having took a big haircut. So what I did was went to Inland Empire in like east of Los Angeles, probably about 100 miles east of LA, I guess. I'm not sure exactly because anyway, but whatever, and bought a bunch of stuff that was like 75 to 80% off. So if the market hits you in some submarket and commercial, that's always fun. But I think it hit California a lot worse. So maybe I was, maybe I didn't get an impact as bad as I would have been if I'd stayed in California. I don't know. Wow. Okay. I want to stop you right there. First off. <laughs> oh, that's just the beginning. I know. I know. I, know. I, know. I already have questions. I already have questions though. <laughs> you talk very fast, which is wonderful. Cause oh, sorry. Love... That's my, that's my West coast coming. Uh, uh, yeah. 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 No, I, I appreciate it. I try to slow down my talking, but I like fast talkers because I generally talk pretty fast. So you found your first deal on Craigslist, which mm -hmm. is wild. Would you say that that's a good place to look still or is that kind of dead? I doubt it. You might get a one-off. I think if you're looking for a one-off deal, you could probably scour the crap out of Craigslist and find something that would fit some kind of buying metric. We haven't used it. We don't use it in our business now. So I would say that as, at a, as a volume play, that's probably not a great idea. But okay. that being said, you can get some of the best deals from kind of oddball sources. Right now, we move a high volume of distressed residential properties, and probably 80% of those we market direct to seller. So we get the property directly from the seller. Mm -hmm. And the, some of the best deals that we get are maybe an unconventional source. So I'm not saying that Craigslist is Craigslist of volume. You definitely can't do, I wouldn't think. Mm -hmm. But Craigslist for an occasional deal or referrals are you know great ways to get an occasional, like really, really, really good deal. But yeah, definitely hit that up. What direct-to-seller methods are you using? We've tried all of them. And I'd like to say that I think all of them work for certain people and they work in certain markets and they work in certain market cycles, probably better than others. In terms of how they work for certain people, they work better for some companies than others. So where we're really, really good is we're good at online PPC, so Google marketing. We have a couple websites, a couple campaigns that are just dialed in and they kind of spit out deals, which is cool. We do mail campaigns, so we mail out to distress lists, and then we do some driving for dollars, which is kind of interesting. If the guys are out on an appointment, they'll drive a neighborhood a little bit and maybe drop a pin and do that kind of thing. Strangely enough, I think we've gotten three deals this year from bandit signs, which we're not bandit sign people because I think it's, it's kind of a, it's, I mean, it's not the most clean business model, I guess. You're kind of littering to try to get deals, but we put up bandit signs in neighborhoods when we sell properties with seller financing because it attracts a buyer kind of profile that we 
that we like for those properties. So we've gotten a couple of deals just kind of happenstance by that. But the ones that we're not good at, we're not good at cold calling. So we're not one of those annoying people that call the everyone. Like they call me like all the time. So we've tried it. We know how to make it work. We're just not great with that. So we don't like it. And we haven't done texting for like three years because we're just, again, not that interested in it. That's a long way of saying we like to focus, I guess, on leads co contacting us and coming in like inbound stuff and not so much on the cold outreach going the other direction. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You feel less scummy, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're here to get paid, but you kind of want to, I mean, I sleep fine, but yeah, you want to, <laughs> you want to not have to shower too much at night. <laughs> I get oh, it. And, and actually, actually referral deals can be really good too. We help other guys oh. move deals. We sometimes buy deals from even our competitors. Like we'll compete on a deal by deal basis. If we're coming up against someone else, we're, we're definitely there to win. But if they come to us with a deal that makes sense and fits our buy box, you know, we'll buy from them tomorrow. So it doesn't matter. And our, edu our education thing actually provides a couple deals. Not a lot. It's definitely not the purpose of it. But we help people kind of work through their deal flow and help them get maybe a better deal or maybe, you know, help them work, work it out. So that's maybe 15%. Eh, so not a huge, not a huge volume play, but it, it helps. So when you say education, that's for helping other investors or is that for educating uh, sellers? Oh, yeah. That's fundamentally what REI AF is. REI is real estate investing, I think. And so we have a little small mastermind that we're not really trying to push like super hard, but we got we have some folks in it. We have some free products. We have some paid stuff. So it it, it has some deal flow to it. It's more about like helping people. I wouldn't say it's exactly a loss leader because it makes money for us, but we're not like, we're not really pushing it to just like, like crank out money. We're really mu very much in the market and in the, in the industry. And that's the way we like it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's very cool. Circling back to that first deal that you found on Craigslist in Memphis, how many units did you say that was? First one was uh, 112. It was, I think, I think we had 10 tenants when we bought it. They were actually Whoa. paying. Yeah, it was, it was low occupancy. It was not, not the best property ever. I mean, it was pretty good once I sold it, but it wasn't, it wasn't great when we bought it. And the second deal was 98. So, so that's, that's one way to start. Yeah. Those are really big properties right off the bat. What gave you the confidence to go out and take such underperforming properties on the other side of the country? Oh yeah. I was young and dumb. Like that was a hundred percent. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> no, they were no fundamentally, fundamentally, they were both decent properties in what at the time was, I thought it looked like a pretty good submarket. There were some actives and some recently solds at a, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but probably the mid 30 K price per unit, more or less. We bought this one at 870,000. So for the roughly the price of a California house, we bought 112 units, but it needed obviously a lot of work. It needed about 15 to about 15 K a unit capitalization. So, I mean, we figured rough math. Okay. We're going to be in 23. It's worth 33 a unit. That sounds like a great deal. Yeah. And then 2008 does 2008 stuff. And turns out there's a different outcome than the ex expectation. Mm -hmm. So you didn't take this on by yourself. More or less, if you're going to lose money, it always helps to, I guess, do it with some family money, your friends and family. <laughs> so it was a, it was a group project. We didn't do like a syndication, you know, five Oh, whatever, anything like that, mm -hmm. mostly because of the price point and because we wanted to maintain uh, control of the asset and because you know, we thought it'd be, we, th we thought we could. So, and we could like the rehab was very successful. The management was definitely successful. The sub market in the crash changed significantly in terms of market occupancy Mm -hmm. and market rents. So that hurt us in a, a bad way. And overall, I would say the property was successful from the get-go until the market kind of made it less successful. So tell me a bit about that, because when I think of the housing market crashing, I imagine a lot of homeowners turned to 
into renters. So it would be more beneficial for you. How did that not equate like that? How did, how was it actually a negative impact? So I think that's, I think probably what we weren't factoring in as well as we could have was that particular submarket was, in my opinion, overbuilt in terms of units. There were several large properties, 112 units isn't massive, but it's pretty good size. There were several large properties in the three to 600 unit range that had recently turned over also, and were in the process of being renovated. So in an upward market, I think we're going to look at that as being predictive of, you know, competition being good. The problem was that that submarket with that many units coming online at a, it was like C minus, so it wasn't the best neighborhoods. That many units coming online, in my experience anyway, was more susceptible to market fluctuations. So what we saw was some of the B minus and even solid B markets dropping their rents to stay more occupied, which was drawing away our preferred, I would say better tenant base. So it just became more problematic to keep people in the units. Our eviction rate went up. I don't know what it was, obviously, because it's years ago. We got out of that and yeah. I think 2010, but our eviction rate went up. Our collections rates went up. We got collection checks from the attorneys for like years after we sold them from like back rent. So that was, that's wow. kind of cool. All right. That's a little bonus. So I think it was a case of the B, the B like solid B markets kind of drawing some of the C clientele that direction to maintain their occupancy. That is a really interesting insight. You know, from that, I conclude that maybe a B asset in that market maybe held on it's held its value a little better maybe fared a little a little better yeah i think so i kept track when i was out there i kept track of pretty much any property that sold over 100 units definitely in our like sub markets because we were in basically two but there were some that were similar to ours i didn't track the ones that were in the b markets as much and i probably should have it would have maybe given more insight in terms of the market dynamics but that was it was fun it was if you're 24 and got nothing else to do and nothing to lose go for it give it a shot <laughs> Yeah, why not? You have so much time to recover. Exactly. So much confidence. You said you were 24, which the brain doesn't finish developing the the rationale portion of like how to how to figure fear, right? Until you're 25. <laughs> so maybe that was part of it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you take all these silly risks. But no, it worked out. As you should. That's real estate, right? You always have to jump in and take a gamble. And you know, if it doesn't work out, you get a huge lesson and you're a better investor because of it. So let's tap into that. What kind of lessons did you learn from that from the first deal or even the first two deals? Yeah, for sure. One was don't buy stuff at the top of the market. That's speculative. And that, I mean, that sounds easy to say, right? Because if right. the market's going up, it's always the top of the market. Technically, if the market's going up. But the way we've applied that recently is to adjust our risk when we saw the market slowing down a year ago. We adjusted the business model from being heavy into the flip space into a lot more wholesales, wholesales, novations, and seller finance. We still do by volume of deals. We still do about 20% of our deals are flips, but they tend to take more time. So they're probably only about half that in terms of actual like deal volume right now. I'm not sure what our KPIs are. So I think it made me more conscious of what the market's doing. I think it maybe made me actually more conservative than I should have been from 2000, maybe 12, 13, 14 until about, uh, probably about COVID more or less. So I think that was actually a probably market miscalculation that I made where I should have jumped back into commercial, but I was just kind of burned out um, from that. So I was happy buying stuff in California for dirt cheap and cash flowing it and doing some rehabs before moving out to Dallas and kind of building the volume-based business that we have now. One of the biggest takeaways I took a while to figure out how to apply in the residential space and in this particular business was the importance of building up the team and the employees 
and just the dynamic of really liking who you work with. We've made some mistakes, obviously, in the past when hiring, as everyone does from time to time. But what we've really honed in on in the past several years is the team dynamic and how important it is to have a team all steering, all paddling the same direction with, you know, one or two people steering that also want to make sure they get to the same destination. So there's not a lot of conflict in who's pulling the rudder one way or the other. And also how much a bad player on a team can drive down a team dynamic. You think everyone's 1099, they're just, you don't pay them unless they produce, whatever. That, yeah, that's technically true. But if someone is in conflict with other team members and just like dragging down the office space, it can drive down the entire production. So that was a huge thing to learn. It took us a long time to build the team in Tennessee. It probably took us about a year stable because we, we did management in-house. We were... The fancy term that everyone's saying in the commercial space now is vertically integrated, and we were 100% vertically integrated. So we had construction in-house, we had management in-house, we had obviously, I mean, I guess what else is there really, but we had all that in-house. We outsourced evictions, and we'd, and we'd subcontract like the big ticket things, and we'd subcontract some of the get ready and rehab work. But even that, we ended up doing a lot in-house just because we liked maintaining that control. And that serves us well in our volume company now. The other big takeaway was taking a volume-based business approach. If we're rehabbing hundred units, we're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So we kind of apply that in the flipping and rehab model too, especially if we're doing a volume of those where, yeah, the product's always a little bit different, but we take the same kind of approach in terms of, we're not trying to be designers. Yeah. We're not trying to be Chip and Joanna. They're nice people from what I hear. We're trying to turn out volume. And by doing that, we put out a product that looks nice, that appeals to a broad price point base. And that is relatively easy to repeat. Yes. So systems, you're doing it systematically so that you can scale. Absolutely. You know, we all hear things when we need to hear it. And I feel like this is a message I'm getting like beat over the head with, like okay. don't do things willy nilly, Alana, get a spreadsheet, do the same thing. So that's really a, a great point. And I think a lot of our listeners would agree with you. There's a lot to dive in here and you kind of already segued why or where have you gone since those first two deals? So you moved out to Texas. I'd be curious to know what attracted you to Texas. And then what are you guys doing there? Yeah, for sure. So at the crash, it was painful. I walked around for a headache for probably like nine months straight. One of those like back of the head ones that doesn't go away. So oh, that no. was fun. So yeah. after we sold the second one, I went back. I surfed a lot. That was fun. Did a lot of scuba diving. Bought a couple of houses to kind of like figure out what I was doing to make a little bit of money. Didn't definitely was not crushing it at that time, but wasn't mentally in the right space. I don't think for like just building a volume based play did well, I suppose decided I got married and decided, you know what? My wife and I talked, she had a decent job, but obviously not making as much as she does now doing like this company together. We talked and said, you know, let's, let's move somewhere else. We're from Southern California. We both grew up here, both went to college here, both like it here well enough. But housing prices, now what is this, 10 years ago? Housing prices are getting high. Uh, let's find someplace more affordable, which is kind of funny because now everywhere's you know quite a bit higher. And let's see if we can find a market that we can do a little bit higher volume because I didn't understand or know anyone that was really doing a market uh, like a volume-based business in Southern California at the time. Now, mm -hmm. 10 years later, I know folks that are, and I, I have some friends out there that are doing it, definitely. But we just thought, you know, let's find somewhere a little more affordable where if we make a mistake, it's not going to hurt so bad. And if it goes well, maybe we can do a bunch of them. And we looked all over the country. She had a job in finance. So we looked, her office had offices in Raleigh, which is kind of fun, like kind of trendy. They had offices in Boston, which is like, oh, that sounds kind of fun. I like the East Coast. I like yeah, uh, the history expensive. and all the stuff, but <laughs> yeah. it's cold. It's like, uh, mm -hmm. I, don't know if I, I don't know if I didn't want to deal with the cold. No. Uh, and Raleigh seemed really muggy. So I don't know. You look at articles on Business Insider, Wall Street Journal, all those things. Like, where's where are they saying is like fun for like 
late 20s early 30s people to like move and have a good life and if everything sucks maybe we'll just get a job and you know who knows whatever yeah and north texas dallas plano frisco always kind of popped up in these articles as top top five for sure generally top one or two Mm-hmm. And I knew some folks in Dallas. Actually, if I'd bought in Dallas in 06, probably would be a different story. But I had some friends out in Dallas. So I've been out here a couple of times. And we just kind of said, you know what? If it sucks, we have a house in San Diego we can move back to. I can go back to being a beach bum and get a job. If it doesn't suck, then we'll just stay out there and make a go of it and whatever. We didn't put any kind of artificial time frame. We didn't have a, oh, burn the boats to make sure you make it. We didn't really do any of that. Like, you know what, if mm-hmm. it works, I'm kind of pragmatic, I guess. If it works, let's do more of it. If it doesn't work, let's change course and figure out what's working. So that was our mindset going in. I definitely had some ups and downs, figuring out a new market and then a new like business dynamic and all that. And the walking story, which we can talk about, you know, whenever you want to, a bit of a setback, but it turns out it turns out pretty well. So it's, it's got a good outcome. It just has a long way of getting there. Okay. Okay. Lots to jump into. Before we get into what your current portfolio looks like at your current company and your challenges where you're at there, I do want to touch back on this walking story of you learning how to walk. What happened? So stuff never goes as planned, right? I mean, even in business. And when people ask me how to do the first deal, how do I build a business? How do I do all this stuff? They're always worried about failure. Like that's... uh, how do I not fail? Well, you don't not fail. You, you don't, you, you don't fail by not doing. So, you know, how do you survive something where the entire country is, you know, 50% off? Well, by not playing, right? So if you're going to play the game, you're going to fail. So that's the takeaway from the backstory. The more specifics are, it's not very sexy or interesting. I was rock climbing in an indoor gym. Now I wish it was in like Northwest Arkansas and like a helicopter right. and all this other stuff. That would be so much cooler. And something <laughs> sure. malfunctioned at this indoor gym about actually two miles that way. And the blade of lice slipped on my way down while I was coming down. I ended up falling about 20-ish feet. I like to think it was higher. I, I would like to say it was you know, like, oh man, I fell 30 feet and bounced off 15 rocks. No, I fell like 20 <laughs> feet and landed right on my like back or something. And it shattered a vertebrae in my back. So I was paralyzed for about two months, I guess. I had to learn how to walk again. Went into surgery. They bolted some metal in there to stabilize everything. The doctors told me I'd never walk again. Uh, so that was fun. And I said, no, I think we're going to try to walk again. We're going to see what happens. So kind of funny enough, my first private flight was ever, forever, was like in a private plane to go from Dallas to San Diego because I hadn't transferred my insurance over yet. It was only about four months after moving out here. So I did like a medical Learjet to San Diego. That was exciting. Uh, I was in the hospital for 10 weeks and then another four weeks, I think in San Diego, like outpatient therapy. And so the takeaway from that is, because that's all an interesting story, I suppose. And that's kind of fun to tell, I guess, especially if you're walking around and playing golf again. Um, Right. You've survived it for sure. There's a couple of takeaways. And one of the ones is definitely don't don't uh, listen to the detractors or the kind of naysayers, whoever they are, family, friends, people that haven't literally walked in your shoes. And I'm not saying you shouldn't take their opinion into account and you shouldn't maybe take it with a grain of salt or like understand their perspective. But mm-hmm. I literally had a therapist. We're sitting down, like setting goals, like, oh, what's your long term goal? And I said, well, my long term goal is to play tennis in six months. And she almost laughed at me. She's like, there's no way you're going to play tennis in six months. I'm like, well, I mean, okay, that's good. good way to motivate me. But yeah, the fuck. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, your motivation. <laughs> so six months, that's a short-term goal in this business. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm in real estate. I don't believe in like six months being a short-term goal. That's a long-term goal because I can change the entire dynamic of our company in six months if I want to. So don't listen to the like the critics and even the professionals if they don't know what you're going through. 
Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that was only one person. Every, like most of the other people, the doctors were very supportive. But mm-hmm. maybe she was an off day, so I didn't I didn't see her again, which is probably good for both of us. And the next one is the one that we actually took and applied to business that works really well is when you have a singular focus that you really want to accomplish and basically have to accomplish, when you go through something like that, because it's life-changing, I fell while rock climbing, not while like in a car accident or falling off a curb or, you know, because mm-hmm. of bad health. Um, so I'm thinking, okay, I might not be able to be active the rest of my life. Uh, I might not be able to go surfing or scuba diving or rock climbing. I still haven't done rock climbing. I'm going to stay away from that one. I might never be able to bike ride or play golf. I might never be able to walk again. Yeah. So you have this kind of existential crisis. And what does that mean? It means I don't know what life looks like after this point. I don't know if there is a life that goes past this point because you don't really know what that is. So you say, okay, let's work with everything that's possible to overcome this objective, this hurdle, this obstacle that we have, and nothing else matters. So you put on blinders and you have one thing that matters. At the time we had three flips going, one lost some money. I don't know how much. We never bothered to look at the accounting because who cares? One made some money, which is cool. And one kind of broke even. And none of that stuff mattered because all that mattered was, okay, if you can't move your toe, the only thing that matters is how do you move your toe? If you can't Mm -hmm. move your legs, the only thing that matters is how to move your legs. If you can't stand up, the only thing that matters is how do you stand up? And you just go step by step by step progressively to do really one step at a time with an end big objective in mind, but with understanding the next step is literally just the only one that you're possible able to do right in front of you. And it turns out in 10 10 weeks plus another four, I guess, outside. So 14 weeks, I'm not good at math. (laughs) You can drastically change what you're able to accomplish. So there's obviously like physiological limitations. If my spinal cord was 100% cut and there's just no possible way of recovery, then maybe it's a different conversation. But you don't know what those limitations are in your business, in your life, until you try to push through them. And then if you only have one focus that you're trying to push through and working on, then you can do some amazing things. So many people get the shiny object bogged down and, oh, I want to be a I want to be in real estate. I want to be an investor. I want to be an agent. I want to help people. I want to be in education. I want to be whatever. Just do one because they all make really, really good money until you figure out how to do one really, really well. And then Mm -hmm. start adding on extra stuff here and there a little bit if if it complements your core values and your core competencies as an individual. So learn how to walk before you learn how to run. And I played tennis in six months. So the therapist was wrong. It wasn't good tennis. It was not, it was not good tennis. Uh, It was bad (laughs) tennis, Uh, but it was out there. So that was good. You were out there on the court holding a racket and balls were involved and that's all that needed to be said. (laughs) I mean, it it made the point to me. I never bothered to tell her because I don't even remember her name. I remember the good people's names, not the bad people's. Yeah. So that seems like to be a, a trend for you is, you know, I hear a lot of when you talk about failure and, and I'm, I agree, right. Is more of your interpretation of what failure is. And if we, focus on that, it's going to consume us, right? Oh, for sure. I feel like for some reason early on, you already knew that in order to be successful, you're going to fail. And that's part of the journey, not the end of the journey. Mm -hmm. Because you could have taken it as a sign from the universe that you shouldn't be in Texas, being that you were only there four months and then got sent back to San Diego for three months or however long it, yeah, was. it was. about five, Yeah, it was only about five months. And we thought about it. We really did. But we still had some obligations out in Texas. So we, and we thought about it. If you're doing something really stupid and you're bumping into something, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. I mean, that's one thing mm-hmm. that people don't like to talk about. But yeah. I think it's important to reevaluate and have some introspection on what is and isn't working, but mm-hmm. then really apply, okay, well, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? And what's the objective? And if what we're doing is pursuing that objective, 
then mm-hmm. let's keep pushing through and keep doing that. In anything, in a market decline, like you have to take responsibility because fundamentally the buck stops here. So you have to go back and you have to negotiate and you have to do what you can do to get out of the situation. The same thing with an accident, same thing with a, a flip that goes wrong. We have you know stuff once in a while that doesn't go the way we intended to. But mm-hmm. so we either pivot and reevaluate where we are or say, you know what, screw it. This deal sucks. It is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It's you're not taking it on emotionally. It sounds like that's what happened with the accident. That's what you do with business and just focusing on the next step. Like you said, taking it step by step is really important to not get overwhelmed. I think that a lot of us look at, you know, building a portfolio, being financially free, being successful in real estate. And it can almost be overwhelming because there's so many steps to get there that it can be paralyzing in itself, right? Not to circle back to that, but in itself, like not wanting to take, not breaking it down enough to like, this Mm. is what I'm doing today, right? Absolutely. And focusing on that. And that laser focus is how we go far. And I've heard it explained as bridges, right? So you're building one bridge at a time and not shiny object syndrome of half bridges everywhere, which I also relate to. You climb a mountain one step at a time, which is what makes a a back accident even that much like less fun because I used to do mountain climbing too in California. And one time I climbed Mount Shasta, Northern California with my dad. And I'd been up a couple of times. So I knew the route. I knew the distance. I knew the exertion. And I was quite a bit younger. I haven't gone mountain climbing since my back accident. Just don't really have a desire to anymore, I guess. Yeah. And it sounds bad, but the only way I got him to the top of the mountain was I kept lying to him. Pretty much. Because you can only see, you can only see over the next hump, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, it's no, no problem. I mean, it's just a little bit beyond that. It's not a big deal. And again, like everyone, okay, what's what's the goal? Oh, I don't know. The goal is to make a hundred million dollars. Well, I have no idea how to do that. I know how to make a million bucks. That's relatively straightforward. Okay, well, let's figure out how to do that a hundred times. Oh, oh mm-hmm. well, now it's now it's a lot more straightforward. So we really only know how to do what we know how to do and what we can learn to do based on our current skill set and based on expanding off of that skill set. So it's, it's the same as climbing a mountain. You, you almost have to lie to yourself to be to get to the next step because yeah. there's always a bigger mountain. The ironic part about at least Mount Shasta, the view from the top, if it's foggy, it's not that good. So who cares? So you look for a, a bigger mountain, but the experience mm-hmm. of going up and doing it and pushing through, oh no, my bad. There actually is another hill over that hill. It's the same yeah. thing in life. There's always something bigger to do. So whatever obje- objective people have is hundred rentals, thousand rentals, 10,000 rentals. It doesn't matter. You start it by doing one and mm-hmm. figure out if you like it. And then right. you do, I mean, maybe you do 112, whatever, but you start with doing one deal and then you figure out if you like it. And then you do another one and reevaluate. And maybe they're not meeting the actual objective. Maybe it's not as fast as you want. Maybe you can't scale as much as you want with this product. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't like tenants. Maybe you yeah. don't, maybe whatever, maybe you reevaluate. You it doesn't like mean it you give all. up and you quit because yeah. life sucks. Like you've got to deal with sucky stuff. So you don't just give up and quit and throw on the towel, but you definitely reevaluate and make adjustments to the, to the business model. That's great. It's so inspirational to hear that you recovered so quickly. It's a lot of mindset, which is in line with, being an entrepreneur, if, if, you know, if something like that's going to happen, having it happen to somebody who's an entrepreneur and already used to self-motivation and setting and hitting and crushing goals, like that's, it's going to, you know, what, what a better person for it to happen to. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess the harder you work, the lucky you are. Is that Abraham Lincoln or something like that? But I I don't necessarily consider myself a lucky person once in a while stuff goes right, but yeah, I mean, stuff goes wrong too. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff always goes wrong in real estate and life. That's what I always say. Like stuff will go uh, not as you plan just about every single time. 
And so that's fine. and that's fine. Like people don't understand that, but that's absolutely fine because really the experience is about taking the journey and about doing mm-hmm. the thing. At the end of our life, we're dead, and whatever we pass on is cool. But they might screw it up just as well as they are able to maintain it. So really, mm-hmm. passing down the skill set and and just going through the experience of doing the thing is really the most critical part. Even in California, like if if stuff's half off, that means the people that were buying at seventy percent and thought they were giving generational wealth to their kids, they're taking a twenty percent haircut. So mm-hmm. so really, building the skill set and teaching people and teaching kids or whatever is so much more important than just passing on some arbitrary, like made up number. M- money is made up anyway. So how much made up money do you want to pass on to someone in the next generation without teaching them the skill sets to how to be successful on their own? Wow. That is really deep. Beyond passing down the assets that we accumulate in our lifetime, which is definitely something I think about a goal of, of the rentals and portfolio that I'll pass on to my kids, but the actual skill set of getting there, of building that is so much more important than the mindset and how we talk to ourselves is how they'll talk to themselves. And even if everything that I had, I lost and I didn't pass on anything else. If I pass that on, then they'll be successful. And, and and hopefully that will be a little unspoken legacy, but that is really cool. I'm noting that. So, like it. Yeah. Yeah. So inspiring. So take me now to your current portfolio and what you're currently doing. Yeah, no problem. So we operate out of North Texas. We're in Dallas, which is cool. We love it out here. We joke, moved out here because of the weather, which it's only a little tongue in cheek. It was hot for July and August. It was over a hundred for quite a few days. <laughs> yeah. Nobody but, comes from San Diego and says that they moved to Texas for the weather. But we moved out here partially because of the more, like the downs are not as bad. So it doesn't get frozen over for six months out of the year. And the hot is, it's hot, but you learn how to navigate it. But you do stuff earlier in the morning. If you want to go, you know, work out outside or go bike riding or whatever, mm-hmm. play golf in the afternoon, you're going to, you know, you're going to, it's going to be hot. So you just kind of learn to navigate it, but we wanted somewhere where you're not like shut down and cold for like three to six months. Right. So that's why I picked Dallas and we move a high volume of distressed residential properties, uh, all, almost all direct to seller marketing. So marketing, you know, outreach to sellers, like we talked about earlier, which mm-hmm. works really well for us. We're very good at it. We're some of the best in our market with our marketing channels that we do. And from there, we try to merge a exit strategy from our perspective. So how are we going to exit this property? That's beneficial, obviously, to us, because if it's not beneficial to us, we're not in business, but also then provides the best value to the sellers. And what we find in the negotiation side is very often the sellers coming from, this is where realtors and investors don't always understand each other's marketplaces. So mm-hmm. I, I'm a licensed California broker. My wife's a Texas agent. My Actually, no, she's a Texas broker. She just passed her broker's license. So we understand, obviously, that aspect of it. My Broker's license in California is inactive because I don't need it for anything. And my agent license in Texas isn't active either. But where a bunch of agents kind of get into, I don't want to say trouble, but don't understand the investing side, where a bunch of investors don't understand the agent side, is in the distressed world, we're dealing with houses that aren't always and generally not habitable by anyone that like knew. So, I mean, if you collect a bunch of stuff and you're a hoarder and you got stuff up to here, yeah, it's technically habitable by you, but it's not Mm -hmm. habitable to the next guy in their perspective. So we're not dealing with nice properties. We're not dealing with things that go on the marketplace and we're not depriving a retail buyer of an opportunity to buy a nice house in a nice neighborhood for a nice price. That Do we do that from time to time? Yeah, I suppose so, because we do a lot of volume. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, we're dealing with some really not good stuff. So under that auspice then, the seller's not is interested in money 
as they are about solving what their problems are. Yeah. And that's an agent. If you're a listing agent, your job is generally perceived as being, okay, let's get the highest and best offer on this property. That's generally perceived as what the objective is. Right. Uh, we take it a step beyond that. If you want to do highest and best offer on the property, then we're happy to give you our highest and best cash offer, or we're happy to list it ourselves or refer it to a listing agent to someone else that can get you that outcome if you want that. But if you have a house that isn't retail ready, then what's, what's the actual problem? What's your motivation? So that's how we train the sales team is to dig into what's the service that we can provide the seller. And sometimes it's really simple. Sometimes it's the seller wants to get all the family albums, the gun collection, the gold bars. I've never bumped into those after we bought a house. I keep hoping I will sometime. Like I, they mm -hmm. almost take that with them. I don't know why. I think it's actually kind of rude. It's unfortunate. I wish they'd leave it there for us. But what they do leave is all the crap they don't want. And yeah. what is that What is that crap causing them? Well, it's kind of same as my perspective about like passing down legacy, really. The crap is weighing them down. It's emotionally draining. They don't know who to call to get rid of it. They go through the same process that anyone's parents go through when their grandparents, when their parents die, or that we go through maybe when our parents die or whatever. I got to go through all this shit. I don't want to. I already got the cool stuff because that's the stuff that's actually valuable, like either intrinsically or psychologically to me. Right. And what do I do with this couch? I should donate it. I should do whatever because you think that you're doing some kind of charity work. For us, it's it's not an emotional thing. It's we make one phone call and the stuff's gone before we even see the house after we buy it. Right. So being able to just something as simple as that to a seller where they're not money motivated, their lack of pain motivated, their take away this pain, take away this issue, take away this headache. And it sounds silly to see an asset as a pain, but if an asset isn't producing money and if it's a lot of work to make the asset producing, then it is a liability, like, tech, mm -hmm. like intellectually or, or psychologically. So that's, yeah. that's what we train the team. So from that perspective, we, we beat our competition a lot. We're actually not very often the highest offer, but we very often don't get beat because we're able to provide an understanding and a service offering that the sellers appreciate more than our competition because we try to connect the sellers and try to figure out what they actually want. We have in office, we have four sales guys. Yeah, four, four sales guys in our industry as an acquisitions agent. So they their job is to go out on appointment and buy houses. So they contract stuff. They have free reign to contract stuff with an option, basically contract anything with our leads. So our leads are very expensive, company generated, and they go out and they contract stuff. We contracted, I don't even know, actually, I think we contracted one on Wednesday and I think we're trying to lock one up today, but I'm not sure. On the sales side, we have two people in sales. So their job is to sell the stuff off market if we're not going to hit the market. And that's kind of the office dynamic, more or less. We have an ops guy that does operation stuff and we do the media. In office, we have operations guy. So he does like a lot of lead follow-up, a lot of like making sure everyone's kind of doing their job. And then my job is to kind of, it's not, it's not even revenue generating at this point. My job is to make sure everyone plays nice in the sandbox with each other. They don't have a lot of tension or fights to provide the company culture and enforce that. And mm -hmm. then to, when something goes wrong, to either fix it or figure out how much money we have to throw out of it to get out of it without it being a catastrophic, like just clusterfuck. So that's kind of my job at this point. And it's a, it's a good dynamic. We have, I think, 35 active deals right now, and we turn over quite a few per month. It's a fun business. That is beautiful. I love this whole team system. In my brain, I imagine building these teams like you have for the businesses I have going on in my life. And, you know, hiring is a little bit intimidating, right? How did you get over your first hire? Was it mm -hmm. um, out of necessity or did you from the beginning start put putting people in place even before like the deals were there, just knowing you were going to scale. 
Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And a lot of investors get it wrong because they think that the team is the is the revenue generating aspect of the business. And it's not. The team facilitates the revenue, but the leads and the lead flow and the training is the revenue generating aspect. So what a lot of people do is they overhire initially, mm-hmm. and then they have a lot of attrition because their sales team isn't making money. And that's not good because we're not a traditional real estate agency, obviously. We're not, people aren't tasked with going out and finding their own deals and finding their own leads and generating their own leads and us making an overhead on that. We make a bigger portion of the money than they do for transaction because we provide the leads and the environment and the training for making that happen. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I, about about four years ago, we started playing with it. We were doing the solopreneur thing after the back accident for a couple of years to kind of, again, I guess, fix the mental issues that come with learning how to walk again and figuring out how to like do the business again. And the 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 right answer and the only answer that really works is you have to have a solid direction of the company and you have to have uh, aligned core values with the team members in the company. And that sounds airy-fairy, especially when you read it in some business development book. Like, what the hell does that shit mean? I have no <laughs> idea what that crap means. But it means that you need to have a clear-cut pathway for the people on the team to be successful. And you need to make sure that pathway also helps facilitate the objective of the overall company. Otherwise, you're going to have tension. Mm-hmm. So if you have a guy that wants to be a business partner and all they're really good at is acquisitions, but they really, really, really want to be a business partner, it's not going to work out because they have misaligned objectives, especially Mm -hmm. if they're, for example, asking for a paycheck every time something closes and not like understanding that it gets back into the company and turns into the next transaction and grows. So we've bumped into that where where employees wanted to be more on that side and they weren't good at it. So we never allowed them to develop that, but we had misaligned objectives and issues with that type of team member. And yeah. currently we currently we're big enough where we don't have to have that problem anymore, but that's definitely part of the growth issue. That's very difficult to overcome. How do you handle that with somebody that you really enjoy having on your team? And maybe they want to be more of like in acquisitions, but their skill sets are, is there may be more of a backend paperwork person, but they uh-huh. really express wanting to be in a different role than maybe what their skill set, their natural skill sets are, is what, what kind of conversations do you have around that? First, figure out if they want to be in the company because the company is a good place to be, or figure out if they want to fulfill a job role because they think they're going to have an objective that's beneficial to them, I think is probably the best answer to that. Because if their only objective is their personal benefit, which is fine. Like, I think we're all, the whole reason I built this company was lack of pain. Like, I don't want to talk to sellers. So I haven't talked to a seller for like two years because I don't like it. So part of the building the team was a pain aspect on my part, like relieving pain. Like, that's painful to talk to these sellers. It's always the same conversation. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Well, how do I fix that? Well, I hire someone else to do it. Well, now I'm going to have a different pain. Well, is that pain better than this pain? Turns out it is. Mm-hmm. And it's more mm-hmm. scalable. And the the pleasure and the idea of scaling a team that works is way more fun than going out and doing the same thing transactionally myself over and over again. So figure out what's their objective. Is their objective to fulfill a job role? In which case, can they fulfill that job role in your company without a lot of drag on you and figure out if they are good at it or not? And if if they, you might surprise, they might surprise you. They might be really good at it, who knows? Or if you were like adamant about like, you know what? I think you're a great guy. I think you'd be great for this role over here. I love you on the team. You'd be absolute crap at this. I don't want you to do it. Maybe give them a test, maybe encourage them to work for one of your competitors. I don't know. And really try to steer them into something that works well. That being said, if you hire a higher level of intelligence in your team, which is another thing in the sales industry, I suppose, not to pick on sales guys, but I mean, used car salesman is a great example. 
you don't need to be super smart to sell used cars. Real estate, if you don't need to be super smart to answer the phone and say, well, how much do you want for your house? And, oh, well, I can't do that, but I can do this. Like, that's not a very sophisticated outlook. Mm -hmm. But in order to have a higher margin on your deals, you need smarter people that can do better. And if you have smarter people, they can probably fulfill multiple roles as you're growing. And that's what we did. We had people fulfilling multiple roles as we grew. And there's benefits to that. The benefits are you can build a smaller team that's more multifunctional, more dynamic. The downside is you bump into issues with scaling beyond a certain capacity because fundamentally people are really, really good. Kind of like we said about focusing, they're really, really good at doing one or two things. So now what we try to focus on is having people that really only have like specific job roles, specific tasks that are really good at those tasks, but they're smarter and compensated for being smarter and better because they can understand now, how does that task fit into the whole picture of the team itself? And if they can do that, then we're going to preferentially maybe not pigeonhole them into one job task. If they really want to try something else, go mm-hmm. ahead and let them try. It's not a big deal, but fundamentally hiring, right? It's, it's really easy with construction. Like I would say in construction, hire fast and fire fast. Some of my best employees have been ones that said they can do something. I said, well, I don't know, give it a shot. If you can, cool. If you can't, don't come back tomorrow. That doesn't work so well in real estate. It turns out like that was my philosophy for a while. Hire fast and fire fast in real estate. It turns out that you actually probably should hire slow and you probably should fire relatively fast if someone's mm-hmm. not working out well. So at, at this point, we do a lot of, do they fit with the vibe? Again, it sounds airy-fairy, but if they're coming here all mopey and they bring that into the environment, then that's not going to work out. Is someone just a, just a drag of a person? It doesn't mean they're a bad person necessarily. I mean, it might. But that's not going to work out. Now, it doesn't mean you don't like let people have problems with their personal lives. Sometimes that's a good place to vent and be, uh, what's the term? Like counselor for them, I guess. Supportive? Yeah. So yeah, one of those, supportive. <laughs> so let's say you help people through their problems in life. Right. But they need to still perform their job and they still need to do their job. And I'm not saying they need to leave their problems at the door. I don't think that's fair. I think people want to not dread coming to work and ideally maybe even enjoy it a little bit and maybe even want to be here more than they want to be in the world with their problems. So you do that by listening to the problems. You're not going to fix them because their problems are their personal life, but listening to them, maybe providing some guidance, but reinforcing, okay, you're here. This is the objective. The objective is we need to make a lot of money. The way we do that is by buying houses and selling houses better than our competition. So let's focus on that and let's not bring our baggage in there. And it turns out that's actually really uplifting for people to be able to do. You think it's, you need to fix your problems. No, you don't. Like you, your problems disappear if you pursue something that's a, a good worthwhile objective that people want to, that you want to do, then your problems aren't as important. How do you get through 2008? Well, you do something else that's a bigger objective or push through and like do something else that is fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you have any kind of test for when hiring to, cause you said you hire more intelligent people. Is that just on the job? And then you're like fire fast or you're smarter than you look. How does that go? Yeah, people are generally not smarter than they look. Sometimes they're dumber than they look. Uh, sometimes maybe they are. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we'll do a predictive index test or a disk test for mm-hmm. kind of a idea of where things go. I think that I actually we recently made our recent hire take one twice because we didn't believe his results the first time. We thought he was lying to us because like I I lie on these tests. If I were to get hired <laughs> by someone, I would say, okay, what does the ideal candidate look like for this position? This is okay. the person I wish I was. I'm going to skew the results because I can, you know, I can adapt my personality if I want to. And I'm going to skew the results to make it so it looks like I'm 
a fit for this position because I want this position. Okay. Now that backfires if you get the position and you're and you're absolute shit at it. But yeah. you know, whatever. My objective at that point is I want to get this position. So here's what I need to do to get the position. So I've always taken those with a grain of salt because I project that mindset on other people. And most people are probably fundamentally not going to do that. Like <laughs> realistically not um, good got it yeah. I, well yeah 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 adaptive i think it's adaptive is the word. Oh, okay okay that's uh, probably a better word yeah but so i so i think people can adapt their personalities to fit a role if they want to and i think people can surprise themselves if they have a personality proclivity of a certain type that they can expand either beyond that or make the job task fit into that personality type in ways that will surprise you quite a bit not always not always so that's where it's a predictive it's called predictive you know predictive index or disk it's predictive of the type of thing they might be able to accomplish it doesn't mean they're going to so then we say okay well are they going to fit the vibe like do we like are they like a person that works with the environment are they going to like be able to crack jokes be a little sarcastic be able to like work in the team environment that's important that's the most important thing really and then from there it's really a multiple step interview process where I'm not even going to talk to them until we've already basically made a decision as to whether or not they're going to come in the team or not. We're they're going to talk to the acquisition lead. They're going to talk to the acquisition, our my business partner who runs the acquisition side and the negotiation side. They're going to talk to them. They're going to talk to the operations guy and my wife maybe together and figure out okay, like what's the other side not seeing? Because maybe an acquisitions team lead wants to fit someone into the role or the mold because they need that position filled. So okay, whatever. And then I'm going to talk to them at the end if they're even maybe a fit. And I'm just going to talk to them like they're actually a person. I mean, it sounds crazy, but you learn a lot more about someone by treating them like they're a person than right. by doing tests or by grilling them or by, well, what would you do in this situation? Or what's the what's the best one? Oh, sell me this pen. Like, okay, yeah, okay. But that doesn't, I mean, yeah, that works, I guess. But we're not building a massive sales team. We're trying to build a higher level, more competent sales team that understands where they fit in the bigger picture. So I don't even talk to them unless like it's a, it's not even a final decision. We've already made the decision positive or negative. Mm -hmm. Maybe I talk to them even if they're a no, but like, if it's a yes, then it's just, it's a conversation like they're a person. And that's the ultimate test, I guess, is do you fit the vibe? Does it yeah. work? Because if, if that doesn't work, then it's not going to work out. So I've only dived into the disc test a little bit. Huh. Um, mine tells me that i'm a complete prick by the way so is that, that a high d of, take that with a grain of salt it might be like the highest one available yeah is it high d yeah and like those last two those last two they're pretty much okay. irrelevant yeah okay I, I, if i were to guess that's with a little knowledge that i that i have i would guess that you were a high d on the disc profile and that's again that's with me taking the test honestly not me trying to throw the results yeah well you don't like talking to people or, or at least you don't want to talk to the sellers and you seem, yeah, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Direct, leadery. Oh, that's really sweet. Thank you. Yeah. I don't think leadery is a word, so. It works. It works. <laughs> it's only bad if they have to transcribe it or something. So. Whatever. Right, right. Good luck with that, editor. Great. So have we gone into your current challenges yet with what you're doing? So you're mostly doing you know, direct to seller distressed mm -hmm. properties, right? Sometimes you're flipping them. Sometimes mm -hmm. you're whole tailing them, yeah. whole tailing, whole tailing, which if you want, you know, whole tailing, right. is putting them on the market. Right. Mm -hmm. And then wholesaling is just kind of doing assigning the contract. Yeah. Yeah. Assigning the contract direct right. to a buyer. Right. So 
we've gone over that in previous episodes, so I don't want to beat a dead horse and we we're going. Yeah, I don't need to re- reiterate what is wholesaling and why is it a good business model or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good business model in the marketplace for sure. Yeah. There's definitely a need for it. You know, that there's plenty of sellers in distress that you wouldn't want or they wouldn't want their home on the market. So I get it. Um, but what are your current challenges with what you're doing? Yeah. So twofold, I think. And it kind of goes back to reevaluating sometimes. The biggest one that's kind of fun that we're working on is we thought it'd be fun about two years ago to start buying a bunch of rentals. Turns out I didn't learn my lesson from 2008, nine, that rentals are really a pain and they're difficult to scale because if you're wanting to buy, if you have a goal, whatever your goal is, a thousand rentals or something like that, you got to fix up a thousand houses to get a thousand nice rentals or you got to pay retail. Well, that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So we bought a bunch and they do well, but they are difficult to scale and there's a turnover ratio and all that associated with them, which it kind of is what it is. So right now, our big objective is we're trying to build a debt fund because we sell a lot of deals with seller financing on terms. So we basically are the bank and we provide terms to the buyer and they buy the property with our financing in place. And there are very good rates for from the lender's perspective. And it's a good benefit for the buyer for a, a lot of different reasons. It's probably an entirely different conversation. Mm-hmm. But the problem is we're not made out of money. So when we do one of those, we generally resell the note to one of our note buyers to recapitalize ourselves so we can do volume. And we've done, I think 45 or 50 of those this year, which is, I mean, more wow. than most people, I think. Yeah, that's substantial. But if our average price is 150K, that's, uh, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. If I was better at math, I actually have a minor in math, but I'm not good at arithmetic. I'd know what that <laughs> number was. But we're like, you know what? If we can do 45 or 50 of those ourselves and the default rate is low and the interest rate is high and the investors here are happy and the buyers are happy and we're good at doing that, well, why don't we start portfolioing those ourselves? So we're in the process of building a 506C, whatever the hell it is, all the reg D, something, something, something. Yeah. You pay the attorneys a lot of money. 506C if you're advertising it. You pay the attorneys a lot of money. They give you a lot of paperwork that I have to read and fix because they don't understand the business model so much. They understand the legal paperwork. So you got to go back and forth. So we're in the process of doing that. And we're going to target raising hopefully 15 million bucks, which sounds like a lot of money until you do the math on how much it's going to make, which is not bad, but it's not going to be like... Honestly, it's not gonna be life-changing money, but it's gonna be a good stepping stone to probably building a second fund that's a lot bigger. So that's our big objectives. That's takes my spare time. In terms of the company, that's the that's the easier one to fix because I know how to fix it. We're just not sure exactly the right procedure for fixing it. It's not even a fix. At this level, we're a pretty established team, I think. But if one person leaves, it sucks because there's a big hole because we're not a, a massive team. Mm-hmm. So we're in the process of basically trying to double our current transactional volume. There's a lot of marketing hurdles that go into, you think, oh, I'm just going to spend twice as much on marketing. It doesn't work like that. But there's a lot of hurdles in terms of like how to structure marketing to go over. There's obviously the operational issues about who to hire when, because again, we're the ones generating and providing the leads. So if we hire someone and they can't be successful because of a lack of lead flow, then that's that's our fault. That's our problem. If they can't mm-hmm. be successful because they suck, that's also our problem actually, because we probably shouldn't have hired them. So we're going through those issues and it'll probably take a year or two to get there, but we should be able to double our current transactional volume without a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of work, but without like, it's not really that complex. We already have the groundwork that's well-established. Awesome. That is a lofty goal to double, right? I've heard other growth (laughs) experts say aim for a 20% increase every year in five years, you'll be doubled, but you're just going straight to doubling. You're going to smash it. I love it. It's not that hard because 
I mean, if I wanted to flip twice the houses that we're flipping right now, that would be a lot of operational and logistical drag. I don't think people understand, like, it's not a difficult, sophisticated business. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's mm-hmm. a lot of dealing with, I don't know, lead flow issues. There's a lot of dealing with, obviously, employee issues, but it's not like, it's not rocket science. Yeah. So, so mm-hmm. someone that's established isn't that far ahead of someone that's really brand new to the game, except in their ability to fix those issues. And once that's you figure out how to fix those issues, mm-hmm. because scaling is not that much more difficult. Going from one deal a month to one deal a week, that's that's actually pretty hard. But going from like one deal a week to two or three or four deals a week, it's not really that hard. And we have we have weeks where we close seven deals and we have weeks where we close one. So evening that out and just making sure that every week is whatever it is, seven deals every week, it's not that hard. Yeah, I love that. We've talked about it previously. There's a lot of crossover if you're listening to this and you're an investor or if you're also a real estate agent because the it's essentially the same. We have a lot of the same job of finding sellers, mm-hmm. right? Helping and you even with the brokerage can help them in multiple ways. And that's a direction that a lot of agents can take is also taking the role of an investor. When you approach sellers with more tools in your tool belt of being able to, you know, wholesale it, wholesale it or rehab it or buy it yourself, right? You're able to help them better. You're a better agent. You you can oh, do your sure. job better. So it's the same, uh, it's the same role as in our team. I wouldn't necessarily encourage an agent to try to go be, and we don't, by the way, we have agents that we work with and we have agents that come to our masterminds and our like stuff. And if they're really, really crushing it as an agent, they should maybe figure out how to be a better agent before they figure out how to be an amazing investor. It doesn't mean they shouldn't pick up a couple of rentals or start doing stuff, but I don't want to go into a field and compete with someone like me in their field without knowing how to do the basics first. So right. figure out what's the what's the path of least resistance for the objective. And obviously, you know, r- rentals, cash flow, and all that stuff is very good. And I think every agent that wants to be credible probably ought to do that aspect of investing. Mm-hmm. But really digging into like going in and doing hardcore distress stuff. If you yeah. haven't walked to a hoarder house with literally 20 years of poop hanging out in the bathroom, it's not necessarily pleasant. Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe it's not fun. So right. you have to kind of enjoy what you want to do too, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very all good points. So we kind of just touched on it is what's your advice to a beginner wanting to take a similar path as you with your business? Yeah, one is get over your fear of, for any beginner in any uh, real estate related industry, get over the fear of loss because you're going to lose. Like I guarantee it. If you do enough deals, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. You're going to lose a listing. If you're an agent, yeah, someone in your office is going to snag the listing from you and you're going to get pissed off at them. Or someone in a competing office is going to get the listing. It's going to happen. But you're going to, obviously, if you're working with buyers, like you're going to have buyers that turn into complete jerks you don't want to work with. Fire your bad buyers. Fire your bad clients. Because yeah. they're not worth the drag and the mental like issues that come with dealing with their bullshit. Even if you're going to make a bunch of money, and that's a tough thing to do. And fire them quickly too, because you know pretty quickly who's a pain in the butt and who's not based on working with them for a little while. In terms of like the distressed, so get over your fear of loss, get over and in any industry, get over the analysis paralysis thing Mm -hmm. is, well, I don't understand all the aspects of all the things that I'm likely to do in the whatever it is thing. And that comes from a college or high school level of like understanding education, I think, where, okay, I have to pass calculus in order to like graduate or whatever. Uh, You don't have to do that. In real estate, you have to know what's the next step in front of you. It's a lot more learning like how to like learning how to walk again. What's the next step? Oh, I don't have a contract. Okay. Probably ought to figure out how to get a contract. Oh, I don't have a like I don't have a contract, like a paper contract. I probably ought to get a copy of a contract and read it and figure out what's in there. Okay, well, now I don't have a contract on a property. 
how do I how do I do that? Well, I find someone that has a property that's crappy that wants to sell it. Well, how do I do that? Well, figure out the least headache way of doing that and do that if you want to be a solopreneur. Now that's probably door knocking. That might be bandit signs. It might be cold calling. It might be, you know, even PPC compete with us. But find out what's your fastest path to the next step in the objective. Don't get don't go so far that you're going to get yourself into trouble. So don't overpromise and underdeliver to a seller. You're going to get sued and you're going to lose. But make sure that the next step is the next step. And you take the next step by it's not YouTube University as much as I wish it was, because there's no YouTube University is uh, a map of the United States. You can learn how to cook, bake a cake, go rock climbing, fly an airplane, do real estate investing, whatever. But there's no starting point. There's no destination point, And there's no highlighted roadmap for where you make different turns at what point. So mm-hmm. you can absolutely learn it. That's a great knowledge base. But is it going to prepare you for going out there and doing it? No, probably not. Mm-hmm. So then we're going to say, well, what's the best way of preparing myself for doing the thing? Find someone who's doing it and give them value. Mm-hmm. There's basically two ways of doing that. Maybe three, I suppose. One is pay for it. And that's not a bad way of doing it. I mean, that's a bad, if find someone that's competent that can actually make sure that you get to your objective. Don't pay some right. random guy that doesn't know what they're doing. And that's not a bad way of doing it. There's a lot of shade and there's a lot of bad stuff in the education space. Stay away from it. And the way you stay away from it is by talking to people that are in it and figuring it out. Another way to provide value is get it for free. I don't really do the coffee thing. That's not my thing. Like if you want to provide value and pick my brain, I don't really have time for that. But we can get on the phone for a minute. You can talk to someone in the office and maybe kind of point you in the right direction. There's other people that are way more generous than we are, maybe because they have more time. But my skill set would probably be teaching how to build my company. It wouldn't be telling you how to door knock to a pre-foreclosure lead because I've never done it. But that's probably one of the easiest ways to get your first deal. Even as an agent, door knock a pre-foreclosure lead, like, hey, let's do a short sale here. Let's let's figure this out. Let's do it. Yeah, is that sexy to go like knock on 100 doors? No, of course not. But you're going to learn a lot about talking to 100 people that are going to, 50% of them going to shut their door in your face. And the two that you close are going to probably break down crying when you help them with their problems. So that's going to be very beneficial. The third way that I advocate, because it's in my best interest, is find someone who has an established company and just work there. Is that sexy? I don't know. But the paychecks that some of these guys make that I have to write, they're pretty sexy. Is the percentage sexy? Absolutely not. Because there's a lot of overhead. There's a lot of marketing costs. There's a lot of headache that goes into it, into the training also. But it's how are you going to do 50 deals in your first year unless you work somewhere that's already doing that? That's kind of how you do it. So that's that's honestly the best way to learn. Because if you get a property that's got all kinds of title issues, unless you have someone to turn to, the title company is not going to fix your problems. Right. They're going to tell you a bunch of paperwork they need to maybe get, but they're not going to tell you how to fill it out or how to get the the sellers to sign whatever they need to sign. Mm-hmm. The guy that's done it you know, once a week for 10 years, they're going to tell you how to do that. Then they're going to tell you how to work with the title company to get it done to fulfill the objective. Right. And the only real way to do that is either pay for it or work for a company that's doing it. I don't think you can probably do that just by picking someone's brain for free. I don't think that works. Uh, You'll close deals, but you'll miss out on so many opportunities because you want all the pie all for yourself that it's not going to, it's not going to work out well. I just want to circle back. And I do think that door knocking is sexy. So (laughs) let's not hate on that. It's a little sweaty, but getting out there and working hard is always sexy, but I know what you mean. It's not flashy. It's kind of an old school technique and that's what you mean, but just so I like, for the listeners. Okay. I, I don't want you to think that I just hang out in an office all day. Like I need to go back and forth. I know how to do like every trade that I hire someone to do, except for AC, because I actually kind of like it. 
The problem yeah. is if you take putting in piles a job, I'm not good. Like I'm really not good at it. Right. But I kind of like it. Well, you don't have um, to be. Right. So even six months ago, I hung kitchen cabinets with one of my GCs because he was shorthanded because I have people in the office making money and doing deals. And because there wasn't anything else I had to do that day, I guess I could have gone to play golf. But mm -hmm. yeah, I went and hung cabinets. It's fun. I think it's fun to go back to basics once in a while and make mm -hmm. sure that you still understand and respect the hustle and respect the trade. I'm not here to out hustle anyone. Like I don't believe in that, but I think it's a good thing to respect and to know how to do it because it, it keeps you humble. And it keeps yeah. your skills kind of on point. So door knocking, especially the realtor, honestly, door knocking is a fantastic way to build a book of business. It is. It really is. I know you're inspiring me to circle back to that soon here. So I want to move on to our next question, which is kind of a fun one. What is a book recommendation that you have for us? Do you just want to go with the one that I said before? Yeah, I do. Was? It's shoot. something about toilets or plumbing. Yeah, right. So it's this one right here. Hold up. Okay. There we go. <laughs> My wife's looking at me funny over there. All right. So it's this one right here. I don't read a lot of business books because they all say the same thing. A friend of mine recommended, is it who, not how, or who, not what, or something like that? Who, not how. A, yeah, that, who, not how. Okay. So I listened to it on, no, and no offense to the author. I think it's actually a really good book for someone that doesn't have a team and hasn't hired the who probably, but I listened to it at like 2x speed. And I yeah. felt like it was still too slow, but it's a very good book for the person that it's designed for. So I like personally reading books about biographies, about people that I think have a fascinating story. I have a degree in history from San, in San Diego. So there's a lot of history books, a lot more at home. Uh, I don't read as much as I'd like to, as much as I used to either. But I think it's a good way to get perspective on different time periods, different marketplaces. And I think it's really important to look at people and taking them under the expectations of the time frame and value their success or their failures or their dedication to what they're doing based on what the criteria was and the kind of objectivity was at the time. Never try to project my personal biases or preferences or even necessarily moral philosophy onto other people in other time frames because I think that gets dangerous. Now, that being said, there's definitely bad people, let's be honest, but yeah. let's, let's try to understand what their motivations and what their objectives were for why they were bad people and what turned them into bad people. And this guy is not a bad person. This guy is the most brilliant stock trader and investor that's ever lived in the history of mankind. As far as I'm concerned, he was the richest person in the world, more or less, probably after the crash of what, 23 or whatever, 1920, 29, 29, 29 crash. Oh, that's it. Um, yeah. He was, he made a ton of money in the crash of 1907, I think, that no one even hears about because 29 was way worse. Yeah. Uh, he lost it all between 07 and 29. And then he made it back a couple of times. And then in the, I haven't finished the book. I've read actually the autobiography that he wrote for himself, but I haven't finished the biography of him. But basically he died relatively broke and blew his brains out at his private club that he did not own after drinking two old fashions with his wife. And I think it's a fascinating psychological story on someone who didn't have, again, you can't be the richest person in the world and not be really, really good at what you're doing. So yeah. he had the capacity and he had the knowledge of being successful, but he didn't have the mental fortitude to understand his own deficiencies in the marketplace. And I think a lot of us suffer from something very similar, just not as catastrophically. What I mean by that is from, because I... I like watching stocks for fun. It's kind of fun. I don't really do much with them. But psychologically, he did, he never understood his own issues in the marketplace. He never understood like what he was doing wrong on a macro like business plan level. 
which is really interesting. And even the biography doesn't really go into that because I don't think the author really understands it either. But just mm-hmm. watching like how he behaved and how he made the same mistake repeatedly. And uh, what was his name? Uh, Jesse Livermore. Jesse yeah. Livermore. And yeah. the book that he's holding up is called Boy Plunger. There we go. Boy Plunger. Yeah, go ahead. Continue. Oh, it's, so it's, it's just, it's a fascinating book. And I think it's, I think it's a, a good it's just a good story to like, okay, what did he do wrong? And why was he really, really, really successful? But also why did he end up committing suicide? Because not many people that are that successful commit suicide. Warm feel, warm feel good book. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't really read feel good books. Uh, For you, TJ. His granddaughter is, what's her name? Her, her, his granddaughter is a porn star. So that's interesting. Oh, wow. Brandy Love, I think is her name. Is that the one? Babe, is that, is that his granddaughter? The conservative one? She got in trouble for being like at CPAC or something as a porn star and being conservative, but oh, still a porn funny. star. It's like, oh, I don't know. So anyway. Yeah. Are those not, you're not allowed. Okay. Got it. I, Noted. Brandy Love. Yeah. Brandy, Brandy Love. Brandy Love. I, okay. I, I don't know a whole lot. I'm not really, I know a lot more about his work than her work. I'm just going to put it okay. there. All right. Got it. Respectable. Uh, okay. Cool. Boy Plunger. I have not heard this story and, you know, we had kind of talked about mental health and success. And I feel like that's, it's really important for our listeners too. you know, in, in real estate and real as real estate agents, there's a lot of suicide. It's ridiculous. Yeah. That there's a, lot of, there's a lot of ups and downs. And a lot of it is not having realistic expectations, not understanding the timeline of mm-hmm. it's an investment, like building a business, building your team, building even a solopreneurship. I wouldn't necessarily call it an, you're not really an entrepreneur. If you're an agent, I don't think so, because you're basically doing a straightforward path. You can make yourself an entrepreneur by adding other stuff on, but just there's a lot of misunderstanding about you're building something long-term. So treat mm-hmm. it long-term. If you have some early success, that's awesome. But often early success can be the hindrance to later success because you had a really big deal that just kind of took off. So just understanding that you need to think of time as being a benefit as opposed to a negative. And then you say, okay, well, now what am I putting myself in place for right now? What am I learning right now? What am I doing right now? That's going to be paying off right now because I need to live but also going to pay off in the long-term with where I want to go. Yeah. Just having a bigger outlook, a longer term. I think that's, you know, really important when we dwell in what's just right in front of us, opposite of what we're saying, just take the next step. But also remember there's a big picture. Yeah. You, you need to do, you need to do both. You need to have a balance and you need to actually take the step, but you need to realize the next step is the most important step and you can reevaluate, but yeah but it's not the only step and it's not the end of the world. And understanding also, I suppose that taking that step right now, you don't know where that step is necessarily going to lead. Um, so if it's in the right direction, you're going to get benefits from that step that you don't even know 10 years down the road. It's just, it's just kind of the way life works. So last two questions, and then we'll wrap it up because this has been a very long interview. I feel yeah, like sorry. I know everything about you now. I ramble too much. <laughs> no, it's a lot. It's a lot of good stuff. So what is one fun fact about you that people may not know? Well, we already talked about the back accident thing, so I'm not really sure. Yeah. Well, people probably know that about you. I oh, mean, I know. like, what? I was an Eagle Scout. That's kind of dorky. That is yeah, that's like really dorky. <laughs> no. Yeah. That's kind of a fun fact. I just, yeah, I just thought about that. I haven't thought that about that for years. Again, very admirable um, mm. that you're an Eagle Scout. Thanks for sharing that. Lastly, where can our listeners uh, find out more information about you, follow you in your journey, or maybe find out more information about that fund you're putting together? Oh, that'd be fun. Uh, I'm a super creative guy. So TJ Cozen on Facebook, Instagram, and strangely enough, 
tjkilson.com because again, I'm super creative as some information on it. I probably need to revise it, but I've actually bought deals off of people sending me stuff from Instagram. I've hired people from Facebook. So it's, you know, it, it works. It helps actually build the business. We have our education platform that helps investors get from, we really take it. It's a mastermind based thing, but it really helps investors take it from building a business based on what their actual desires are because there are issues with scaling and everyone thinks they want to do volume until they do volume. And about half the people that get to doing volume decide they don't want to do it. So we teach people to kind of navigate that process in terms of what is the best way to get to the objective you actually want. And that's the reiaf.com. So all of our information is up on there. The fund we haven't launched yet. I have a lot of PPMs of our competition to read through. So I spent yesterday <laughs> doing that. That was exciting. But we're building, yeah, we're building the debt fund. It's going to be TCB Capital, which is cool. We have all that like set up. We got the website. It's about ready to launch. And the attorneys have already gotten paid a lot. So it's time to have them <laughs> file some stuff and get it wrapped up. It's um, going to happen. We have a fund marketing plan put in place. It's going to be, it's definitely going to be a stretch for us. It's going to be 50-50, more or less, targeted 50-50, what do you call it? Seller finance notes. So the stuff that we're originating ourselves. And then also hard money lending on distressed assets. So not necessarily stuff in our portfolio because we don't need that service. But just in the marketplace, we have a lot of experience, obviously, from the consumer side. And one of my business partners came over from a hard money lending company where he did loans for years. So we we know all the dangers in that marketplace. We know all the risks. Then we know how to hedge ourselves and protect the fund pretty well. Uh, it's going to be strictly cash flow with minimized risk and predictability is our objective. Wow. Lots of data there. Very awesome. exciting. <laughs> if you want more information than what he's already given you, be sure to check out his website, which is tjcozen.com or reiaf.com. I will have those links in the show notes. Thank you so much, TJ, for hopping on. It's been such a pleasure interviewing you and hearing all about your strong mindset. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that was our interview. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, like, subscribe, support the show for more content like this. And if you are so inclined, I'd love a five-star review. It'll help me in the algorithm and reach more people. That would be wonderful. If you'd like to connect with the show, feel free to go to the website, obsessedwithrealestateshow.com, where you can find all of the resources, all the book recommendations, links to those, as well as submit to be a guest on the show. You can find me on Instagram, follow and reach out at Alana George underscore real estate. I'd love if you reached out and said hello, as well as if you are interested in syndications, my website, clearconnectioncapital.com has a lot of information on what syndications are, why they're beneficial as real estate investments. So check that out. I will see you on the next episode.